This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. In session one, we were proposing that the sanctuary can be a lot more simple than we make it out to be, and that ultimately it is the protocol God made to make contact between God and man possible and safe, because God's glory would consume us if there was not something to deal with the sin problem. And so this is the action of a loving God who wants to draw near to us, not of some kind of um, fickle God who's trying to make it difficult. And sometimes I think we make the sanctuary more difficult. We have our map on the board here, and again I put north down so that our flow will go left to right, uh, even though we're going east to west, so the map is upside down from normal orientations here. And this protocol, one more review, the whole sanctuary process is an act of faith because you're trusting God is not baiting you and switching you the way Jehu did to the Baal worshippers, that he actually will do what he said he will do. And so you are coming in faith that God is faithful and not deceiving you in some way. Now this protocol, again, which we can do in our prayer time, starts at the gate. You don't get into the premises until you enter the gate. Psalms 100, verse 4. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. And the question is, thankful for what? Is it, I'm thankful I have a nice home and a car and heat and, and in my case during Christmas in Maine with no power at zero, a good wood stove and, and uh, so forth? Certainly. Should we be thanking God for those things? Certainly. But is there more to what we're entering with thanksgiving for? See, what was the difference between Cain and Abel? What was Cain's offering? It was fruit. What was a fruit offering? What was that expressing to God? It's not a works offering. See, in the sacrificial system, this would be a thank offering. Thank you, God, for blessing my fields and so forth and so on. Cain was a thankful person. What was missing? What was missing? The blood. What's Cain saying by giving thanks but nothing else? He says, there's no problem with us. I don't need a sacrifice. 
thank you God for being a nice guy, but there's no real issue here. He's not accepting God's assessment that there's a problem that needs addressing. He's thankful, but he's not repentant. Abel comes repentant, right? He submits to God's appointed way. But Cain doesn't submit because he doesn't want to admit there's a problem. Everything's chill, Lord. Everything's, I love you. You're a good guy. I'm a good guy. I don't need that stuff like Abel. Here, I'm thankful. See, I, I acknowledge you. You blessed me. But he won't accept God's judgment of his problem. That's why we need more. Because we can be thankful for our house, car, generator, whatever, right? Family, wife, children, husband, uncles, aunts, whatever, grandparents. We can be thankful for all these things and still be unrepentant, right? So how is it that we enter with thanksgiving and not be like Cain? Well, let's connect the dots here. What are we ultimately thankful for? That God has provided a protocol and a way to approach him safely. And by recognizing that you just can't approach God any old way, that there is a safe way and an unsafe way, that makes you acknowledge there's a problem that needs fixing. So we have to come to God surrendered to his assessment of our condition. And we have to trust that assessment more than our own assessment. Now, what case in the New Testament illustrates that problem? Laodicea. Because what's Laodicea's problem? It's not the lukewarmness. That's the symptom of the problem. Right? But you say, I am rich, increased with it. The you say is what? How they see themselves. But then God says, you say, you're rich, etc., etc. But I say, you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Now Laodicea has to make a choice. Do I accept God's assessment or do I stick with my own assessment? And when your own assessment says everything's hunky-dory, etc., then you're comfortable and you get lukewarm. Which is why Christ introduces himself to that church as the faithful and true witness. Because what he's about to tell them is so contrary to their opinion, they're not going to want to believe it. So when we enter with thanksgiving, we're yielding our Laodicean self-judgment and we're acknowledging, God, I accept your judgment. I'm a sinner in trouble who needs help. 
And I'm coming because I'm thankful you've made a way. Anyone can be happy for the nice house, car, toothbrush, or whatever. But not anyone is thankful that God made a way in spite of their condition. But there's more to this protocol of the gate. This is a voluntary action. No one forced you to go to the sanctuary at sword point, spear point, knife point, gun point, or any other kind of point. You came because you were responding to God's promise and invitation. Now granted for efficiency, the heads of household represented and so the family kind of comes through the head of household, but still you came voluntarily, not by force. We can't force people into the kingdom of God. In addition, you had to come yourself. You could not send your servant to offer sacrifice for you. You couldn't send your neighbor to offer sacrifice for you. And once you were an adult, you don't send mommy and daddy to sacrifice for you. This is something personal. You have to interact with God yourself. Very Protestant principle here, right? You just can't trust the pastor to do it for you. Or mommy to do it for you. Or the pathfinder leader to do it for you. Etc., etc. And so, I'm coming thankful that in spite of my sinful ways and slavery to sin, that God has made a way of deliverance. I come voluntarily in response to God. I'm not forced into this, but I got to do it myself. No one can do it for me. And hence I come humble and repentant. I like the chapter here in Psalm 66. As I recall, this is the one where David talks about if I cherish iniquity in my heart, you won't forgive me. But I've come with humble, I've confessed my sin. The humble and contrite heart God is, won't throw out, you know, etc., etc. Um, uh, this way. I'm forgetting what Proverbs is, so let's... Let's open to it. The wonders of electronics when they work. Proverbs 15. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. God is looking for more than payment of penalty. You had the problem in the prophets where he says, I'm sick of your sacrifices because you just sacrifice and keep on. I'm rich enough. 
to pay the speeding fines so I keep speeding. The purpose of the sanctuary is not to enable rebellion and regression and hence the first step of obeying the gospel is to submit to God's appointed way, right? We don't negotiate. And that's the humility here. We come on God's terms, not on our terms. And we must come with a sacrifice, a substitute who dies in our place. And again, Leviticus 4 and 5 is all the sin offering protocols, and it goes through the rich and the poor and various and so forth and so on. But you don't approach God without sacrifice to substitute in your place. And finally, we go back to our original theme here. We must enter in faith and confidence that God is not pulling a Jehu on us, that he is going to do we don't enter the gates, oh, I hope he's not tricking me. You know. I hope he'll forgive me. We enter confident that if we submit to his appointed way, that he will respond to our surrender with grace. Now we come to the altar of burnt offering. And so after we enter in our prayer life with the prayer and I'm coming voluntarily and I'm repentant and I know I'm wrong and I need help and Lord, you've promised and all that stuff at the gate. Now we get down to the business of actual uh, confession and sacrifice issues. And we discover that one must make specific confession. You didn't bring a sin offering to the priest and say, well, I, I've sinned. In the King James, you have the phrase, he confesses in that thing. I sinned in this particular way. Now, I would argue that the morning and evening sacrifice was about that. I know I've sinned, but I'm not quite sure how. Right? So we have that general coverage of everyone. We all know we're kind of sinful, sin. We're not always aware of what we're doing wrong. God, please cover that. But now God brings something specific to your heart and mind, and you know in a specific way that you've dishonored God and rebelled and so forth. The sanctuary... In part of the protocol is it forces us to take responsibility for our choices. See, now most of us, I think, go to church regularly. and We know that the ground of church work is also cursed like the field ground is. And so our churches periodically have little squabbles, right? Sometimes big squabbles. And you're on that church board or discussion or something and somebody says some very angry, hurtful, yada-da type things to you 
and they come to you later and they say, if I've offended or hurt you in any way, please forgive me. How do you feel? I'm going to pick up my brother. He's awake here. Why are you laughing? See, if I've offended you in any way, how does that come across? That. It's as if they think, I really don't think I acted wrongly, but if it offended you, I'm sorry. Right? Or to put it another way, it comes across to me as disingenuous. They're doing this as a social politeness and again, it tends to put the problem more on you than on them. I remember I pastored, I affectionately call it my World War III and Armageddon church in one package. Um, when I went in to pastor that church, I thought I had met the beast of Daniel with iron teeth that breaks in pieces everything in its path. Conference, new conference president with 40 years experience and they gave him a run for the money. Now you know when you have a multi-church district all the big things happen when you're at the other church as the pastor. And so I preached 9.30 and headed to my other church and during the 11 o'clock Sabbath school hour interesting incident. This is a deeply divided church. I mean monumental fireworks. I still have bullet holes. Sabbath school superintendent gets up front. There's too much hate and anger in this church. I feel impressed. We need to, you know, da 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 da. I'll make up names. I'll call her um, Joan and her husband Fred was the head elder. These are all made up names again. And one of their arch enemies in this theological war and power struggle over who was going to control the church, I'll call him John. And Joan says, I want everybody to get up, find someone that you're in disagreement with, and pray for unity with each other. Ask for forgiveness. And she comes beelining off of the pulpit, grabs her husband, and beelines them to John. Now, don't get me wrong, John gave me a run for the money as well. But John had enough sense to know this is an explosive situation, and I think just be quiet is the best solution right now. So he doesn't want to make a ruckus, so he kneels down with them. And the head elder says to John, John, I forgive you for all the bad things you've said about me. How does John feel? Attacked, right? Whereas if he had said to John, John, I've said some bad things about you and I was wrong, please forgive me, would that be different? See, why? Because they're owning up to what they did that hurt you and they're taking responsibility for it and they're humbling themselves, etc. When we pray to God, it's not just, God, I know I screwed up today, please forgive me. It's being aware and responsible enough to say, God, 
I know I dishonored you in this way today, and I'm sorry. I don't want to keep doing this. I want to change. See, that's genuine. Otherwise, we end up kind of like Adam and yeah, you know, Adam in the garden, right? The woman that thou gavest me, who's he blaming? God. Sanctuary, part of the healing process of forgiveness is that the offender needs to admit honestly where they were wrong. Now, I'm going to take a short tangent here. We got a lot of young people here who probably are not yet parents. And someday you're probably going to have more than one child. Don't make your child say, I'm sorry, to the other child, because you may be making them lie. Ooh, I just got some raised eyebrows. See, if they say I was wrong, that's a factual statement, whether they feel it or not, right? I'm sorry, that's more subjective. But if they say, I was wrong to do X, as opposed to, I was sorry I did X. Now, if they want to add the sorry honestly, that's good. But at minimum, then, we admit, I was wrong. Well, that's the three hardest words of the human heart, right? Especially for a stubborn old mule like me. I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. I know it hurt you. Please forgive me. I want to change this. See? That's what sanctuary calls us to do, is to own up honestly, humbly, specifically. What did Ellen White say? Specific and to the point, as I recall. That way. See, I'm, I'm baiting you for the next session after lunch. There's a lot of dysfunction that happens in the name of forgiveness. As I hinted at in my story with John, aren't you going to forgive, you know. Oh, after, I forgive you for all the bad things, and John just kind of, I don't know what to do with this. Finally, the elder says to him, John, aren't you going to forgive me? Well, it's a little more complicated. I'm willing to forgive, but there are things we've got to work out. Oh, John is unforgiving. You know. Away we go. There's a difference, I think, if you got the point, between if I've offended you in any way or you know, if I somehow... Or I forgive you for all the bad things you said about me you know, the attack under the guise of forgiveness, as opposed to, I was wrong. I take responsibility, and I want to change how I relate to you so we don't have this dysfunction. Sanctuary is about that last one, to take the ownership so we can change the dynamic and bring true healing. And it has to start here. As I say, I've had a few fireside chats with church members. I like to say, I supplied the chat and they supplied the fire. 
But I've had a couple of tough board meetings where I confronted people about how they behaved at the board during the board. Like, this is getting out of order. Let's settle down, you know? And board meeting was Sunday night, and about Tuesday night, I'm getting a phone call. You know, Pastor, you were right. I was out of order. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. That's a whole much more meaningful phone call than the, if I've offended you in any way, you know. That's what God's working at here. And then the sinner lays their hands. We're going to do more next session on this one. And they confess their sin. And this is an act of transferal. And thus we have a sense of the sinner saying, I don't want this sin. I want to separate from it. I don't want this anymore. Let me get rid of it. But I can't get rid of it myself. God, I need you to take it from me. And a great example of this is Joshua with the filthy garments. And in Hebrew, the word for filthy garments is the, um, basically the rags that women used like a sanitary napkin when they were in their period. And the point is by being in contact, that's what his clothes are made out of. By being in contact with those clothes, it makes him ritually unclean as a priest. He can't enter the sanctuary to do his job. And here's Joshua in clothes that make him unfit to do his job standing before God. And he apparently, kind of like Pilgrim, can't get the backpack off of his own. He apparently can't get, and so the order goes out, take off the filthy clothes and wash the laver, right? And then what? What's the last step? New clothes on. Please notice two things. The exchange, take, receive. Transferring sin off, transferring righteousness on. Right there. Please also notice, when the sin is taken off, what condition is Joshua in? He's naked. Christ's righteousness does not cover filthy garments. It covers nakedness. And so we become naked of soul. God can look everywhere in the heart. Nothing hidden from him. God hears everything. That's what he covers. When I clutch to my menstrual garments and say, Lord, I don't want to be naked, he says, I can't cover that. See, the cherished sin, right? Now, folks, let's not confuse cherished sin with struggle sin. I'll have more on that a little later, but I wish I could preach my Righteousness by Faith series, but that's on audio verse. Again, the garments of Christ's righteousness cover our nakedness, not our dirty clothes.
So we're giving God, take off me. I can't forget the buttons back here. Take it off me and give me, wash me, and give me something better to wear. Because if we put the robe of righteousness over fresh, bloody rags, what happens? The stink and the filth rub off on the clean clothes. I don't go work out downstairs on the elliptical and then just throw this on over my sweaty t-shirt and shorts, right? Same idea. And then, see, we have to understand there is a death penalty for sin because what is the nature of sin? That was my what is the nature of sin? Sin has a disease-like quality, but if we look at sin only through the disease model, we come up short. Because doctors don't kill their patients, right? I like Romans 7. Paul says sin gets its power through what? Up around verse 7, 8, 9, 10, 8, 9, 10. Sin gets its power through what? The law. How is it that sin gets its power through the law? Paul then gives an illustration because he said, before I knew God's law, but then I discovered a law that says don't covet. And what did sin then do? What did sin do? He said, it produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So before there was a law in Paul's experience that said, don't covet, sin had no leverage on him. But suddenly, a thou shalt not pops up. And what did sin do? Sin says, Thou shalt. And when God says, thou shalt, what does sin say? Thou shalt not. The essential nature of sin is to resist established order. Sin is rebellious. And God's universe is endangered by people who, when he says stop, they say go. And when he says go, they say stop. Not going to work. They become a danger to themselves and others because fundamentally sin resists who God is and his authority. And that's why it gets its power through the law. Because until you have a law, there's nothing to resist, right? And folks, we're born under that power. And so you tell your child, I don't see one handy, but the electrical outlet, right? The little toddler, don't touch. 
and the law of sin kicks in, right? Out goes the finger. And suddenly all those toys from Christmas don't mean anything. Their sole interest in life are those four holes in those two sockets on that wall. Nature of sin is to resist and rebel against established order of God. And by the way, I think the nature of sin, we're in this big backlash. Our society is secularized and all the Christians are saying, oh, we've lost our Christian nation, etc., etc." There will come a point where sin will rebel against itself and go religious. And we call that the mark of the beast. Mark of the beast is going to be rebellious backlash against the consequence of sin, but it's still going to be its own form of rebellion. And so there is a death penalty for treason and rebellion due to the danger you are to the system. And therefore God executes sinners. So if God simply says, well, you know, you were deceived. And now people doesn't think he means what he says. Because he did make a threat, right? In the day you eat thereof. That's legal language. And so God's stuck on this problem now. If I let him off the hook, I lose control and everything goes foul. So part of his solution is to say, I'll die in the sinner's place so that we enforce the law. People see I'm serious, but they recognize I can be merciful. So we have to have a substitute die for the sinner so that justice is satisfied. So we approach God through sacrifice. We don't approach God on our own. Now let me add right here, I'll use sacrifice as symbol of the whole protocol, because don't forget the gate. Do we have a story in the Bible about someone who bypasses the protocol? The answer is yes, Nadab and Abihu. They came without repentance. They came with strange fire, not with God's fire, right? They came without sacrifice, and they go all the way in to the most holy place, because it's after this that God says, only go in there once a year. Stop at the altar. And what happens to Nadab and Abihu? I don't mean this as a joke. I mean it seriously. They became their own burnt offering. They had no substitute. Quite literally, they became their own burnt offering. It says they came before. The word for lifne is literally to the face or to the facial presence of. And the point is when you're facial presence of God, he's observing. You have investigative judgment. They came to God's face. He saw and he acted in judgment. Can't approach God unless you come through sacrifice, which means you've got to admit you were wrong and that you can't pay your own penalty and survive. 
Now, this sacrifice has been hotly debated through the years. I didn't put one on here, but we start out with the problem of ransom, right? The Bible talks about Christ's death as a ransom for many. But a ransom is a payment to someone. So who is being paid? And the early theory, which I don't have on here, was that it was a ransom to the devil. God was paying off the devil. Then they decided that's not good because that gives the devil too much power. So ransom to the devil falls out of favor a little after Augustine. Anselm comes along and he says, Ah, sin wounds God's honor. This is an honor issue and the death is to assuage God's honor and restore it. And this is what leads to the angry God who's restrained, you know, you know how a football player or a baseball player gets angry or a basketball player and their, their teammates are restraining them so they can't punch out the other player because they don't want to get kicked out of the game, you know. And so you have the angry father, loving son, restraining him, you know, kind of theology here because you have God as kind of the egomaniac who is, oh, you know, like the duels in, you offended my honor, I challenge you to a duel, you know, uh, kind of a thing. So it's God's honor that's being paid off. Well, Abelard says, I don't like that. That makes God seem very angry and unloving. So he came up with the opposite ditch called the moral influence theory, where the sacrifice of Christ is paying no penalty at all. It's just showing us that sin kills us. But God is not the one who does the executing. It just happens, you know. Put a plastic bag overhead and you die. Live in a life of sin and you die. And so uh, Abelard goes to the opposite ditch that the cross is merely trying to influence us morally, but it does nothing to who God is, has no effect on God. It's all about its effect on us. The problem is you got too much legal retribution language for this one to work. And so we come to the reformers and they say, ah! And Ellen White picks up on this to some degree. The ransom is paying the penalty of the law or else the law loses its effectiveness. I think this is certainly true. However, penal alone can become very legal it's all about the pronouncements and the court and so forth, and it doesn't always seem to attach to real life. Uh, and it can still reek of that, I'm just afraid of the penalty overtone. Now don't get me wrong, God announces penalties and warnings. Uh, there is an appropriate place for fear in biblical theology. It's fear without love. That's the problem, when it's only fear. Okay. In my estimation, each of these has, there is a moral influence element to the atonement, in my opinion. But this excludes. This is the least. But these two here, I think, both have truths, but they're insufficient, perhaps, as a whole. And so out of this grew another alternative, a little earlier from Grotius, called governmental theory, and it's got some issues. But there was a modified form of governmental theory 
that arose in 18th and 19th century Methodism, and you see hints of it in Ellen White's theology. Because she came out of what? 19th century Methodism, absolutely. And the governmental theory, this modified version, in very simple terms, would be something like this. God's dealings with sin is dealt with as a governmental problem, not as a personal problem. See in the, let me go back a slide here. In Anselm, God's reaction to sin is personal and visceral. In governmental theory, God's reaction is as a governor, which is separated. You know, as a parent, you, respond to, you can respond to your children viscerally, which leads to abuse, or you can be a professional parent and say, I'm going to lay my personal feeling, but there are principles here, and I'm going to adjudicate these principles based on the objective facts as a governor, not as a personal hissy fit. And so the governmental theory says God loves man, but when man sins, it gave God a governmental problem that he's got to figure out. And so part of the governmental problem involves the penal, the penalty of the law, but it also affects how do I morally influence my subjects. So you can kind of bring both together under this governmental umbrella. And in this theory, then, the purpose of the law is not its penalty, but the purpose of the law is to teach us how to have a character like God's how to live our life in a godly character way. The law shows us how to replicate God's character in the world because the law is a transcript of God's character. The purpose of speed limits ought to be safety for the society, not fundraising for the government. Right? See, the purpose of the law is this safety and security issue not the penalty and fundraising issue. But the size of the penalty tells us how important we think the law is. So a $5 penalty, that's not a very important law, right? Million dollar penalty, that's an important law. Death penalty, that's a real important law, right? But again, the purpose of the law is not the penalty, it's something else, but the penalty tells us how important it is. There is no penalty. I get this from E.J. Wagner. There's no penalty for not offering sacrifice. Right? If you don't offer sacrifice, you merely receive the penalty of the crime that you deserve. There's no additional penalty for not offering sacrifice. There's no penalty for rejecting Christ. The penalty is for the sins you won't confess. And the government of people love Darius because it makes a great illustration, though it has its limits, right? Did Darius love Daniel? Yes. And Daniel broke the law. Right? About prayer. 
How did Darius react to Daniel's breaking of the law? Oh, good, let me go get this turkey. Is that how he reacted? How did Darius react? What did he spend all day and all night trying to figure out? A way to deliver Daniel. See, Darius loves Daniel. Daniel broke the law. In this case, Darius recognized it was a screwy law, but it's an immutable law. So he bent his mind, how can I legally deliver Daniel so I don't have to send him to the lion's den? Governmental problem. Personally, he loves Daniel. He wants to deliver Daniel, but he could find no legal way that would let him keep his kingdom. And when Darius had to choose Between his kingdom and Daniel, what did he choose? He chose his kingdom. Now in this case, he probably had some selfish motives. When God had to choose between his kingdom and angels, which did he choose? He threw the angels out. Right? When he had to choose between Adam and Eve and his kingdom, which one did he choose? God's not selfish, though. He knows he's the only one qualified to run a healthy universe. If he abdicates that leadership, the universe goes to pot. Loving God can't do that. Folks, the bad news is God will not sacrifice his kingdom to save you. The good news is he will sacri has sacrificed himself, but he won't sacrifice the kingdom. And God did what Darius couldn't do because Darius could not go down into the lion's den and come back out. He could have gone down and delivered Daniel, but the lions would have eaten him and he had no power to come back. But God went down into the lion's den, defeated the lion, and came back. Amen? And so the sacrifice is not indicating a bloodthirsty God who needs appeasement. The sacrifice, rather, tells us of a God who loves us enough to say, I will absorb the cost of justice so that I can maintain the kingdom, but deliver you anyways. Kenosis is a technical term from Philippians 2 where he emptied himself. God emptied himself of his rights and privileges and took on the rights and privileges of a slave in order to die sacrificially so that his enemies could defect and become his friends. Sacrifice then <coughs> tells us about a God who loves us enough to sacrifice himself even unto death. To preserve both his kingdom and save sinners. 
not a bloodthirsty God. It is a self-emptying God. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God first loved, therefore he gave. And he did it again while we were still enemies. God did not die for us because we were so valuable. Your enemy is of no value to you. We have our value because Christ died for us. I want to read about that sacrifice from a 19th century contemporary of Ellen White. He is a Calvinist. But on this one, I think he nailed it. And I see we're getting near the top of the hour, so we're going to have to step on it now. You can download this book online for free as a PDF. This is in chapter 2. God's free love to the sinner is the first part of our message. And God's righteous way of making that free love available to the sinner is the second. What God is and what Christ has done make up one gospel. The belief of that gospel is eternal life. All that believed are justified from all things, Acts 13, 39. This is the part that often tears me up. With a weak faith and a fearful heart, many a sinner stands before the altar. But it is not the strength of his faith, but the perfection of the sacrifice that saves. And no feebleness of faith, no dimness of eye, no trembling of the hand can change the efficacy of our burnt offering. The vigor of our faith can add nothing to it, nor can the poverty of it take anything from it. Faith in all its degrees still reads the inscription. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And if at times the eye is so dim that it cannot read these words through blinding tears or bewildering mist, faith rests itself on the certain knowledge of the fact that the inscription is still there, or at least that the blood itself of which these words remind us remains in all its power and suitableness, upon the altar, unchanged and uneffaced. God says that the believing man is justified. Who are we then that we should say we believe, but we do not know whether we are justified? What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. The question as to the right way of believing is that which puzzles many and engrosses their anxiety to the exclusion of the far greater questions as to the person and work of him who is the object of their believing. Thus their thoughts run in self-righteous direction and are occupied not with what Christ has done, but with what they have yet to do to get themselves connected to his work. What should we have said to the Israelite who on bringing his lamb to the tabernacle should puzzle himself with the question as to the right mode of laying his hands on the head of the victim, and who should refuse to take any comfort from the sacrifice because he was not sure whether he had laid them aright or on the proper place 
or in the right direction or with adequate pressure or in the best attitude. Should we not have told him that his own actings concerning the lamb were not the lamb? And yet that he was speaking of as they were? Should we not have told him that the lamb was everything and his touch nothing as to virtue or merit or recommendation? Should we not have told him to be of good cheer, not because he had laid his hands on the victim in the most approved fashion, but because they had touched that victim, however lightly and imperfectly, and therefore said, let this lamb stand for me, answer for me, die for me? The touching had no virtue in itself, and therefore the excellency of the act was no question to come up at all. It simply intimated that man's, the man's desire that this sacrifice should be taken instead of, of himself as God's appointed way of pardon. It was simply the indication of his consent to God's way of saving him by the substitution of another. The point for him to settle was not, was my touch right or wrong, light or heavy, but was it the touch of the right lamb, the lamb appointed by God for the taking away of sin? He has another excursus. The strength or kind of faith required is nowhere stated. The Holy Spirit has said nothing as to the quantity or quality on which so many dwell and over which they stumble remaining all their days in darkness and uncertainty. It is simply in believing, feeble as our faith may be, that we are invested with this righteousness. For faith is no work, nor merit, nor effort, but the cessation from all of these, and the acceptance in place of them, of what another has done, done completely and forever. The simplest, feeblest faith suffices, for it is not the excellence of our act of faith that does aught for us, but the excellence of him who suffered for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. His perfection suffices to cover not only that which is imperfect in our characters and life, but that which is imperfect in our faith when we believe in his name. Many a feeble hand, perhaps, Many a palsy one was laid on the head of the burnt offering, but the feebleness of the palsied touch did not alter the character of the sacrifice. The burnt offering was still the burnt offering, and the weakest touch sufficed to establish the connection between it and him, because even that feeble touch was the expression of his consciousness that he was unfit to be dealt with on any footing of what he was in himself and of his desire to be dealt with by God on the footing of another infinitely worthier and more perfect than himself. I probably need to stop here, but let's summarize this point. Um, we approach God first by entering into his courts with thanksgiving, voluntarily, thankful, not like Cain, for our nice houses and stuff only, but thankful that in spite of our sin and sinfulness, God has provided a way. So we come humble, repentant, acknowledging our wrong, 
We come with sacrifice. We confess our sins specifically in the confidence that God will do what he has promised. And then we continue that approach through a priest. Sinner did not keep going himself. He went through a representative. And we'll pick that up after lunch because our time is up. May God bless you as you discover the glory of the sufficiency of Christ. And don't get hung up on the sufficiency of your faith. It's Christ who matters. Touch him and he will heal you, like the woman touching the hem of the garment. Let's pray. God, help us to this end, we pray, and give us that cleansing and forgiveness. We trust your faithfulness, and we thank you that you are faithful. In Jesus' name, let God's people say, Ah, the best part's yet to come. We'll see you after lunch. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.